It's like a void of black. There's a portal open here. Let's talk about some spooky shit. Spooky bitches, it's Birdie and Jerica and Savannah, and welcome back to Violent Delights. So, hey guys, in this bi weekly episode, <laughs> we're going to talk about a more serious issue than we normally do. We're going to cover social justice and social injustice, which is yeah. more accurate. The reason we wanted to cover this is unfortunately, it's happening all the time in America with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's gained more of a national spotlight, which is good. As it should, yeah. As it should, yeah. It's becoming more into people's vernacular and in the forefront. And so we have a couple of cases that are really near to our hearts that we want to discuss today. As with any social justice issues, there's going to be a lot of trigger warnings. So please prepare for that. Yeah. And uh, we're actually going to start off with Jerrica. All right, so this is Jerica. The story that I chose to do is the story of Khalif Browder, and it is a um, wrongfully imprisoned, terrible case. Here we go. Uh, the sources that I used were the marshallproject.org, um, which pulls a bunch of um, relevant articles together, so I just wanted to make sure I included that. Then the main articles that I used were um, Before the Law by Jennifer Gonerman, which is in the was published in The New Yorker. Um, and this particular journalist met with him and um, really got his story and published it and was the reason why it was pushed into the national media. And then also fed into the Netflix documentary called Time, the Khalif Browder Story. So let's start with the background. Khalif's biological mother, and, oh, I forgot to mention this. Um, I'm going to refer to him as Khalif because as I go through his story, he's lost in so many ways, and I felt like it's really important that he, his name is used and not, like, his, just his last name and not just you know, his case. Right. I think it's important to highlight him as a person. As a person, yeah. And not his name, yeah. An inmate or... I know, like, yeah. the formality of it is, like, you're supposed to go by the last name, but fuck that. Like, he was a person, and, yeah. like, he is, like, he deserves to have respect. Um, so the background for Cleef. Uh, Cleef's biological mother suffered from a crack addiction, and he was born with having been affected by this addiction as well. Um, stunted growth, small stature being the most recognizable as he aged. He grew up in foster care, where he was then adopted by his um, mother, Vanita. His father left sh soon after, um, around his preteen years, and he sought out friends in order to feel a sense of belonging after the shock of finding out his adoption and then, you know, like his father leaving. Um, in the evening of May 15th, 2010... A man called 911 and reported two black guys had allegedly robbed him, stealing a backpack containing a camera, $700, a credit card, and an iPod. We find later that the man accusing them of the crime had changed his story several times. Police reports conflicted. Like, this happened on, like, he was approached May 15th, but in the police reports it says that the guy said that he 
he didn't rob him then. He ro- he robbed him like a couple weeks ago. And there's dates that are in the police reports like May 2nd, May 8th. He changed the story like three times. So already like starting off on a fucking terrible note. Right. Um, which, hello, like that should be grounds already yeah, to be like suspicious. Yeah, to have it overturned. Right. Yeah. So uh, the crime had allegedly happened, like I said, a couple weeks before, a week or so prior. Cliff was 16 years old at the time. Cleef had a previous case pending from a few months prior, being, you know, a stupid teenager and also going through the things that he was, li- growing up in the Bronx, poor, black, you know. Yeah. He had a previous case pending from a few months prior um, for allegedly taking a car, a delivery truck, on a joyride. So he was on probation. When police, again, in that case, like, no one was killed, no one was hurt. Like, he, you know, obviously was caught. He was a minor. And, again, it was just kind of like a thing on his record when police stopped him and his friend they told him why they were being stopped the night um, in question the boys offered to have police search them told him that like i didn't have anything i didn't rob him and they're asking this guy and the police were like well let me go ask him and then in the documentary they talk about how when they approached the the guys who were accusing him it's like this is the guy who did it right not like what happened, or tell me again what happened. They were leading him. Correct. And they, like, again, he changed his story so many times, and then finally, like, yeah, that's the guy. So it's like, are you fucking kidding me? So from there, the boys were held by the police. Police took them um, into custody, stating that most likely um, they would be able to leave shortly once they got to the precinct. Mm. From there, the boys were held in a holding cell for several hours, only to then be taken to central booking once police came in. 17 hours after being picked up, they were finally interrogated. Meaning they sat there, minors, minors, in custody. That's bullshit. That is bullshit. That's also illegal. Yes! That's kidnapping. Ugh. So when he was in, um, interrogated, um, he maintained his innocence the entire time, as he had previously done. Um, he was in court the following day with a court-appointed attorney, where he finally found out what he was actually being charged with. Meaning, when he, they were interrogating him, when they arrested him, they did not tell him what he was being charged with. They did not tell him why he was being under arrest. Hello? They probably didn't even tell him he was under arrest. No! Again, they said, well, you'll most likely be able to go. hmm Yeah, so, they, he found that he was charged with robbery, grand larceny, and assault. The judge released his friend while the case progressed, but because of the probation, Khalif was held and bail was set at $3,000. Which... $3,000 for a family that has, I believe they had, like, several, his mom had, uh, was a, like, a foster mom for, like, several, like, years, and she had several kids, and, um, again, her husband left her, like, you know, so many factors against her. She herself has heart conditions. She had, like, two or three heart attacks. Right. So she was, like, she couldn't work, like, herself. She depended on her husband, or ex-husband, I guess, in that point. Um, he worked for, uh... MTA, which is, like, the transportation. So he had money. And you find in the documentary, they mention, like, they ask the question, like, could your dad... I assume then your dad could pay, could have paid the bail. And they were like, he could have. Yeah. So that if he's not like, involved in his life. It puts the nail in the coffin. You know, it's just like, ah, it's so hard. So his, his family was unable to pay the bail, so he was transported by bus to Rikers Island, 400-acre island between Queens and the Bronx. Though many reassured him it was a straightforward case, the court system was overwhelmed, inefficient, and therefore unethical. In fact, one of the quotes had said, In 2010, Browder's case was one of 5,695 felonies that the Bronx District Attorney's Office prosecuted. That's insane. That That is is insane. And mind you, this is one district. Like, this is one area. Wow. 
the, like insane to think about. So I wanted to kind of go into a look of like what the times um, had. You know, we had the big stop and frisk, you know, yep. push. Um, fuck Rudy Giuliani because yep. he was the fucking mayor of New York at the time. Um, and let's just get into the fucking shit of Rikers itself. Like, it's nicknamed the Guantanamo of New York. Like, yeah, this is a young kid. He's 16. This is his first introduction to the system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he hasn't even been charged yet. Nope. Mind you. And, and he's like at Rikers with murderers. So just like rapists. to the wolves. And gang members. Yeah. And he stole an iPod. Yeah. The majority of, um, in the, the documentary they talk about, it, majority of the people at Rikers um, are black and brown, mm-hmm. obviously. The majority of the people there, uh, their bail is less than $1,000. Wow. But they just can't yeah. afford. So, to me, that also begs the question of the, the cost of housing them and feeding them has to way offset what oh, anything absolutely. they would get for bail. Yeah. yeah. Like, at what? why are we even housing them? Like, it, it's costing us money at this, you know what I mean? To one not the, let them out on their own recognizance. One of the interesting things that they mentioned, um, I forgot who in the documentary said it, but um, he basically was like, the problems that the city was having and that they were pushing to fix in the city became Rikers problems. So they weren't mm. actually, like, fixing the issues. They were pushing these people, yeah. pr- like, criminalizing things, pushing these people into one place, and, like, it's like a fucking, like, steam pot. Like, everyone's boiling over. Right. Well, and then you get in a situation like that, and let's say that you're attacked by somebody and you have to defend yourself, then you have an assault charge. Yep. Yep. No, 100%. And, like, I'll go into, like, more bullshit of it, but just really just kind of glazing over Rikers in general. Violence. Extreme violence. Like, one of the, I think it was a correctional officer there, he was saying, like, I'd line up, you know, all of the, the adolescents, which is, like, 16 to 18, I'd line up all the adolescents, and I'd be counting one, two, three, four, and by the time I get to four, one had already punched two and, like, mm-hmm. stolen a shoe. You know, it's just, like, they were intense, like, riled up, and it was just, like, a constantly, like, fighting. Um, neglect, like, they would starve them, they would, you know, leave them without showers, like, they had to wash their own clothes in buckets and, like, hang them to dry. Like, they didn't keep them clean. Organized crime. Police officers were extorting people. Like Obviously, like, gangs and all yep. of that shit. Competition, because you're trying to fucking survive. Yeah. Retaliation. Um, something known as the program. Basically, like, I'm going to tell you what to do. These are all the things that you have to do. And, like, you either... If you're with the program, then you're basically a punk and a bitch. And... And if you aren't with the program, you're going to be beat every single time. People are going to jump you like you're a target when you say no. Already, like, Rikers, in general, for anyone, like, they were saying, like, Rikers breaks grown men. Like, can you imagine, like, a boy who's never been away from any, like, never been outside of the city, never anything, and now he's forced into this completely different area on his own, completely isolated, and his siblings, like... We're basically telling him, like, you know, you got to fight. You got to, like, stand up for yourself. Like, you can't look weak. Yeah, any sign of weakness. Yeah, Yeah, he's 5'7", 5'7". Tiny. So, awaiting trial. While in Rikers, other inmates advised Browder to tell his lawyer to file a speedy trial motion, um, basically to dismiss the case because he'd been there so long. Because he wasn't brought to trial within six months. But with so many one-week requests that it turned into six-week delays, he had yet to reach the six-month mark, which I'll go into kind of, like, little details here and there, but 
basically they would file a motion, you know, we need a week because, you know, X, Y, Z. And then, okay, they're granted a week to prepare. And so, again, he sits there. But then that week turns into six weeks because, oh, this person's out of town. Oh, oh, mm-hmm. this person's already on another case. So we have to push it again. So, like, wow. in the paperwork, it says one week, but it's really, all, like, six weeks each time. So, again, that's just extending and extending. And that was his entire, every the whole time he was there. That just constantly happened. Um, so New York State has a version of the um, speedy trial. It's basically like a ready rule. It stipulates that all felony cases, except homicides, must be ready for trial within six months. However, this timeline is subject to techni- technicalities. Obviously, they're going to exploit the system where they can. The clock stops for many reasons. For example, when defense attorneys submit motions before trial, that amount of time that is officially held um, to elapse can be different from the actual time that really has. In 2011, 74% of felony cases in the Bronx were older than six months. 74 fucking percent. That's wild. Mm Mm-hmm. That is. In order for a trial to start, both the defense attorney and the prosecutor have to declare that they are ready. The court clerk then searches for a trial judge who is free and transfers the case, and then jury selection can begin. Um, One of the notes from his own court record stated, June 23rd, 2011, people not ready request one week. August 24th. 2011, people not ready, request one day. November 4th, so from August to November, they requested one day, and then it didn't show up again until November 4th. People not ready, prosecutor on trial, request two weeks. And it's such an open and shut case. Yeah, yeah, oh, I'll get into that too. December 2nd, 2011, prosecutor on trial, request January 3rd. So every time a prosecutor stood before a judge in Browder's case, they requested one week adjournment and got six weeks instead. This counted only as one week against the six-month deadline. There should be a limit on how many Oh, absolutely there should. But, I mean, if no one's going to... Who's going to complain? Who's going to stand up? It's a public defender. Right. Like, he's not char- He's not judged on how many wins or how well he does. Right. It's how many cases you can get off of your ca- off your desk. Right. Which is like... Again, why the system fucking sucks and why we're doing this episode. (laughs) By early 2012, prosecutors had offered Browder a deal. Three and a half years in prison in exchange for a guilty plea. By the end of 2012, Browder had been in jail for 961 days. Oh my god. 961 days. So how much time does that equate to, do you know? Um, it, it roughly turned into about three years. Okay. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah. And again, like he, what's hor- horrific is that he was so afraid of being in the, he had been transferred. He was like, he couldn't even remember how many different placements he had in the jail because it was a lot. And he was like, you right. know, spouting off as many as he could remember. But what would happen is he would be in a situation and then he would deny, like, I'm not going to give you this, this, and you're not going to take this from me. And so they would, he would get jumped. Correctional officers beat him. Um, he got into spats all the time. Like, he were called, like, a, an officer shoved his face to the ground and, like, beat him. Because um, he, like, one of the officers wanted to fight him. It was, like, tired of him mouthing off. And he was, like, come fight me where there aren't cameras. Like, in the showers, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. But as he was, like, walking him there, like, he just beat him on the way there. And, like, couldn't, he couldn't fight back because, again, he's on camera. Mm-hmm. There's a um, surveillance footage, um, which I was not going to post that shit. I, I was not going to watch that. I didn't even watch it. But... I mean, it's, like, 15, 20 people jumping him, including an officer, like, kicking him, joining in. Yeah. Like, it's wild. Wow. So, March 13th, 2013. So, mind you, he was arrested in 2010. And here we are in 2000, early 2013. Khalif appeared before a new judge, Patricia M. Domingo. 
who had been transferred from Brooklyn as part of a larger effort to tackle the Bronx's backlog in the court system. She was a hard-ass, no-nonsense judge with the nickname Judge Judy. And Mm. at the time, she was, like, actually on one of those court TV shows, and I think it was one that was, like, created by Judge Judy. But basically, her job was to clean up the court case backlog and um, extract um, guilty pleas from defendants, get cases, like, weak cases dismissed, or refer cases to a trial in another courtroom. At the start of 2013, there were 952 felony cases in the Bronx, including Cleef's, um, that were more than two years old. In the next 12 months, Domingo disposed of a thousand cases, some as old as five years. Basically, like, they delayed the tort. The, the system is, is basically you break them down, you make it so terrible, and then you, you try to give them a plea that's like, I'm going to win this case. I've, I'm going to yeah. get a plea. Well, and they're so desperate they're gonna at that break. point. They want to see because their families. They want to get back to work. Well, they're getting like, beat. They're, like, hospitalized. They're right. getting, like, I mean, it's, like, anything's better than being in this fucking hell. You're being, like, you're getting your ass now beat every day. 18-year-old didn't finish school because of this. Like, yeah. an iPod. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on May 29th, the 31st court date on Khalif's case, and mind you, oh, I don't know if I said it, but every time he was given a deal. He was like, no, I'm not going, I want to go to trial. Like, I'm not going to say yes to, I'm not going to agree to something that I didn't do. Um, he maintained his innocence the entire time. May 29th, the 31st court date on his case, there was another development. Domingo, this hard-ass judge, um, peered down from the bench. The DA is really in a position right now where they cannot proceed. The complaints, the complainants, so the ones who, like, said that he's, robbed them, had left the country, and therefore prosecutors were unsuccessful in contacting them and had no proof and no case. Right. The next day, he walked out of jail a free man, 20 years old. He remembered feeling strange and out of place. He'd been in solitary for the better part of 17 months straight. Yeah. Because he, like, had to get out of, you know, situations because he was getting attacked. Yeah. So then he spent all this time, he, like, would get in trouble so that they would put him in, you know, um, isolation. PTSD. Yeah. I mean, you're, like, completely... You're literally fighting for your life every second of the day. And, I mean, it's just horrible. He was saying that, like, he would smell his sweat all day because he'd been, like, in solitary and he'd be locked up for 23 hours a day by himself. Um, they didn't, you know... They would starve him sometimes. He'd, like, beg them for, like, scraps. They would come here and there. Like, he was losing weight. His, you know, sibling, when they saw him, and, like, his, completely, his demeanor changed. Because he was bulking up at first, because he was like, I gotta fight for myself. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, as, obviously, as you're wearing down, and, like, more and more shit's happening, like, you can only do so much, you know? You're human. Um, so, life on the outside. Khalif returned home to his mother's house, where two of his brothers still lived. Occasionally crossed paths with old friends, but referred, preferred spending time isolated in his room, oftentimes pacing, like, the days he spent in solitary. He mentioned that being around old friends, seeing the extent of their successes, diplomas, jobs, money, you know, things that you work your life for and then to achieve and celebrate naturally as you grow up, um, that he himself was robbed of the opportunity of, um, only made the transition back all the more traumatic. There's also this thing of like, well, now he has this gap. Yeah. This three year gap. Like, Mm -hmm. how does he explain that? And he was innocent. Right. Like, well, and he doesn't even have anything on his record. So it's like, yeah, I was in Rikers for three. You can't say that. No. But you can't get a job. Correct. Yeah. Like, GED courses cost money. Yeah. They're expensive. Yeah. Well, I mean, not only that, but if you think about it, too, like, it, there's, you know, he's he's used to this type of lifestyle now. Like, I mean, he's been in prison. He's been 
used to like kind of fighting for his life and this and that. Now he gets out and it's kind of like a shock to his system. And I mean, you wonder why people might go back to criminal behavior and it's like, maybe that's what he does. Because yeah, yeah, I mean, he doesn't really kind of know how to do it. Denied every way around. Mm -hmm. Right. He recalled that when he'd do things others his age were doing, dating for example, he'd get to a certain point and his anxiety and traumatic experiences would cause him distress. He'd have like flashbacks and all these things. He said here quote uh they look at me like i ain't worth nothing like i ain't shit it hurts to have people look at you like that if i tell them the story then i gotta hear a hundred questions it gets emotional for me and those emotions i don't feel comfortable with being home is way better than being in jail he told me this is him speaking to the um uh reporter the writer of this article but in my mind right now i feel like i'm still in jail because i'm still feeling the side effects from what happened in there which is so fucking heartbreaking that, like, yeah. he's completely innocent and he was put through this traumatic, horrific fucking thing and, like, is forced to now be burdened with everything that he's now having to process through that. And, you know, like, mental health, as a black person, like, mental health is not, you know, you're just, like, toughing up, especially, I can, right. you know, as a man and all, of, and especially, like, when your mom is ill and, you know, you just got to do what you got to do to help put food on the table you know and it's yeah. just it's so heartbreaking that he like had to suffer through that can i ask you a question mm-hmm. do you know when the courts found out that the people accusing him of this crime had fled see that's what his lawyer after that and i'll get a little bit more in that later okay. um but that's the big question is like the million dollar question is like when because did if they, they couldn't know? contact them right two months after he was put in the majority of the and again there's no like case. the majority of those cases they they stall, hoping that they're going to, like, plead out. Yeah. Like, you know, like, that I they're going to, like, oh, I, get, I did it just to, like, get through, you know, the bullshit. And that's how they, you know, get their solve rate. You know, they get their numbers. It was apparent that Khalif had been struggling to cope and overcome the extensive trauma he was subjected to while incarcerated. About six months after his release, he'd attempted to die by suicide twice in the same day. First being interrupted by a friend attempting to slit his wrists, who then, that friend who then tried to find his mom, um, came back to find him hang, like, trying to hang himself, so Mm. then he was rushed to the the hospital and then um, admitted into a psychiatric facility. Um, And that happened, he had tried to to commit, uh, die by suicide several times in prison, uh, or in jail, like, when he was in solitary, like, Mm -hmm. it was a regular occurrence for him. So it's just so heartbreaking, because, you know, like, he wasn't like that, you know, in the documentary they talk about his teachers who knew him and he was like, oh, he's such a happy kid and no, he's like, you know, such a good kid and like he was just failed so many ways yep. around. Oh yeah, he's he's damaged now. Ugh. Okay, shortly after returning home from incarceration, a family member contacted an attorney, fuck yeah, by the name of Paul V. Prestia. I'm going to say it's Prestia, I don't know if it's Prestia, because in articles it had weird pronunciations, but then in the documentary they said it different ways as well, with people with different accents. So I don't know. I'm just going to say press Joe. Sounds good. Heard the brief details of the case and immediately agreed to take him on as a client. He stated even that um, he thought there had to be some sort of catch of some sort because that there's no way that this could have dragged on that long because it should have been tried in a matter of days. He continued, I don't know how each and every prosecutor who looked at this case continued to let this happen. It's like Khalif didn't even exist, which is like, if that's not the fucking nail, like, yeah. on the head, like, ridiculous. 
And it's just, again, it's so heartbreaking. Like, taking five minutes to read these case notes. Yeah. Like, any DA yeah. worth their salt would have been like, oh, this is a, this is a non-case. Look at, you don't even have to go through the whole thing. Look at the fucking witness, witness statement. Right. Like, fuck that. Even, even if you're just looking at it from a purely economic standpoint, again, how many, how many dollars per day is this costing the city yeah. versus like, oh, we have no case, just let them out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put a fucking ankle monitor. You know, there's so many other ways that you could yeah. do. You know what I mean? Like, if you really, like, had to. Because he was be a such danger. a concern you for know, society. Like, what right? the fuck? At 16, 5'7". <sighs> yeah. So his lawyer filed a suit in early 2014 against the city, the, um, the NYPD, Bronx DA, and the Department of Corrections, citing malicious prosecution. He stated prosecutors were, quote, representing to the court that they would be ready for trial when, in fact, they never were. He suspects that, as he wrote in his complaint, they were seeking long, undue adjournments of these cases to procure a guilty plea from plaintiff. Like, we are talking about basically, like, they want to drag this shit out, make it as hard and grueling as possible to break him. And then he'll give in. And I'm so fucking, like, it sucks fuck that, like, we're always the ones that have, like, the burdens on us, like, you know, and police stops, like, right. to keep your cool, like, just comply. Mm-hmm. The burden's always on, you know, you and not the person Yeah, you have the to system. de-escalate constantly. Yeah, fuck yeah. that. Ugh. Rebuilding. So, so determined to stay busy, whether by desire or in desperate attempt to distract from the horrific trauma he had been forced to endure, he enrolled in GED prep classes, computer courses, counseling, and attempted to find work. He eventually passed his GED test and landed a job as a security guard, the irony being that he was placed as a guard at the same psych facility he was previously. Wow. Right? Yeah. And then rumors circulated and staff began recognizing his name and his story, and soon after he was let go with little explanation. Mm-hmm. Bullshit. Damn it. That's yeah. Because he works so hard and for that. again, well, just I- another fucking failure, another thing, like... Right. Ugh. Not only that, like, shouldn't the psych ward see that as a success? Right? Right. He's reformed. I yeah. mean, like... He's he, fucking trying to... He was able to get help. Also, right. let's not forget, he didn't fucking do it. He didn't like, do it. Yeah. And also, like, he would have compassion, uh, most likely, for other people in the yeah. same situation. Like... The fact that he was even willing to go and, like, work and get a job, like, it just yeah. goes to show you that he And not just go straight back to the streets. Trying to rise above. Yeah. yeah. His lawyer helped him find a part-time job working for a friend of his who runs a jewelry business in the same building as his lawyer's office near Wall Street. And so, and he had talked about, like, being proud to, like, be there and, like, Mm -hmm. he saw the the businessmen, like, women, um, and was like, you know, this is what I want to be. And so, like, the fact that he was still, like, aspiring to things, even though he'd been through so much and still, like, he was going to have a long way to go with this fucking, like, case, you know, like, having to fight the whole entire system, you know? Mm -hmm. Many perceived him um, to be all right, holding a job, taking community college courses, etc. He was candid about his experience. Quote, people tell me because I have this case against the city I'm, that I'll be, I'm all right, but I'm not all right. I'm messed up. I know that I might see some money from this case, but that's not going to help me mentally. I'm mentally scarred right now. That's how I feel. Because there are certain things that changed about me and they ne- they might not go back, which is just... For him to be processing that he's forever, like, damaged, while he's also having to, like, he's giving these interviews, he's putting himself out there, he's, I mean, he's going on, like, the, he's going, you know, Jay-Z, he met Jay-Z, like, he's yeah. doing all of these huge things, like, well, in the public so eye, 
because he's, yes. he's bringing awareness to this because again like and you know people pain. are like oh he had a record you know like how people with the bullshit like oh you should you know you shouldn't run from the police police shouldn't fucking kill people mm-hmm. you know like bottom fucking line like that's not your fucking job oh i get so fired up <laughs> following the article um the first article she wrote another Khalif's mental um, health began to decline. He dropped out of classes and was again hospitalized in multiple psychiatric facilities. Um, the writer visited him in January 2015 and noted he looked gaunt, restless, and survi- uh, suffered from debilitating paranoia. Um, it had mentioned, like, a couple of things that he had, like, had thrown out a TV because he said it was watching him and he, like, could not be in public spaces because mm-hmm. he was just, like, yeah. they're after You know, which... I mean, if you were doing absolutely fucking nothing and, like, were ripped out of your, away from your friend and, like, stuck in this hellhole for fucking three years. And also, he was fighting the entire system. Yes. Honestly, people probably were watching him. Yeah. And following him. Oh, 100%. Especially, like, now now that he has has a case against the city. Right. He has a case against the city Mm -hmm. and he's becoming more well-known because, like you said, he's putting a story out there. He He probably was being followed. He named officers. He named... Everyone, you know, which already, like, again, the culture, it's like, you're a snitch, you know, you're you're weak because, you know, you're giving in, but also, fuck like, that. fuck that. Fuck that. I, I'm sure, too, he had many threats that he probably didn't oh, even, absolutely. like, vocalize about, but, yeah. A few weeks in the facility helped to stabilize him, and they released him again back home, which is like, can we not get a transition program? Can we not get some sort yes. of long-term thing instead of, like... Something that's like he's gonna show up for these counseling classes and he'll be fine, right? Just, yeah, that doesn't sucks. work. <laughs> no, and like especially for someone who was so. I mean, like you don't know what fully he went through, and he's probably not processing everything he went through. You know, so like Ooh, he, he was, should he not so be young. in the space that he is, and he should not be forced to. Like they, ugh, I could go on and on and on. An anonymous donor, moved by his story, paid for his semester, and he decided to re-enroll in classes um, where he began, again, to seem to thrive. In April of 2015, the writer sat down with him and disclosed she'd obtained security footage of one of the uh, countless assaults he'd been endured, which is what I mentioned, like, the video, and he watched it with her and chose to allow her to publish the footage of his story. Again, he watched it. Yeah, again, like he is putting himself out there. He cuz he's like I want people to know this story and I want pe- it to never happen again to somebody else. Fuck, mm-hmm. he watched Which is like it. you have to be like basically, you know, the martyr. Like it yeah. sucks. So the writer had a quote, um, he wanted the public to know what he had gone through so that nobody else would have to endure the same ordeals. His willingness to tell his story publicly and his ability to recount it with great insight ultimately helped persuade Mayor Bill de Blasio to try to reform the city's court system and end the sort of excessive delays that kept him in jail for so long. Sadly, through the struggles he faced internally and in the public eye under immense pressure, Khalif died by suicide in the manner of hanging, found by his mother and his mother. In his bedroom. Aww. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, his lawyer said about the case, in the case of Khalif Browder, he said, when you go over the three years that he spent in jail and all the horrific details he endured, it's unbelievable that this could happen. Sorry, I'm getting really emotional. Happened to a teenager in New York City. He didn't get tortured in some prison camp in another country. It was right here. At the conclusion of the case put forth on behalf of Khalif by his attorney, his estate was awarded a $3.3 million settlement in 2019. He survived by his siblings and his father, as well as various extended family members. His mother died um, two years before the settlement and conclusion of the case. So, according to a statement by the New York City Law Department, 
Caliph's story helped inspire numerous reforms to the justice system to prevent this tragedy from ever happening again, including an end to punitive segregation for young people in Rikers Island. It should also be noted that the city's announced plans to close Rikers by 2027. Whew! Good. Yeah. He did that. Yeah, absolutely. He did that, 100%. He did he that. He should not have had to. No. A five foot seven man had to literally carry the entire justice system on his back. Yep. And, and in one of the most progressive states. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. In New York. It's bullshit. So I wanted to end with, like, organizations doing good kind of connected to this um, because I needed something happy. Yeah. Um, the Innocence Project wor- is working to clear wrongfully imprisoned people via DNA technology and reform the system responsible for unjust imprisonments. Um, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association is a nonprofit dedicated to delivering legal services to those unable to afford counsel. And another one I found was the Center for Social Justice. It's working to build strategic relationships with and between diverse communities and organizations, addressing human rights and social justice issues to build towards a more just society. So that is the story of Khalif Browder. Damn. Tough one. Yeah. Okay, so I wanted to say my sources one more time. Um, TheMarshallProject.org, which is where I pulled um, the majority of the rest of these articles from. Before the Law by Jennifer Goneman is an article in The New Yorker in 2014. Uh, Khalif Browder, 1993-2015, was another article by the same writer and um, The New Yorker. And then the Netflix documentary Time, The Khalif Browder Story, as well as a NBC News article where I got the information about the settlement stuff at the end. Vanna, you're up next. Sorry that I cried. (laughs) No, that's good. Okay, so the story that I thought was important to share today is the story of George Stinney Jr. He was the youngest person executed in the U.S. during the 20th century. That's right, executed. The sources I have are articles that are posted on the WashingtonPost.com, CBSNews.com, TheSun.com, and NBCNews.com. And I will also post like a link to all the articles that I read as well. The reason I find this story really important is because it's the fact that a young child was executed at such like a young age for um, a murder that he did not commit. But I had just heard about this story within the last few months. I didn't even know this story existed. So when I heard about it, I didn't even believe it was real. I actually had to Google it just because I was like, there's no way. I mean, America's history is dark. Don't get me wrong. But it's so whitewashed. Let's let's be real. Um, America's present is real dark. Oh, yeah, Yeah. for Mm -hmm. sure. The history is just the same. More Mm -hmm. of the fucking same. Mm Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I feel like there's, if I didn't hear about it, I know there's other people out there who have not heard about this. And and it's my goal to share this story today because I'm hoping that it's something that we would never, ever have to ever encounter again. Or, you know, anything that we can do to prevent a situation like this happening to a young child, to a black kid, just to, you know, I mean, it's just so heartbreaking. So let me kind of set the scene for you because I feel like this story is more impactful if I kind of you know, put you in the shoes and put you in this time period and put you in this place. So let's say that you were about a seven to eight year old girl, a black girl living in the deep South. I'm talking South Carolina, which is a segregated mill town. It's called Alcolu, I believe. And you're in the 1940s. So already things are not good for you. 
you're already struggling, you're already having a tough time, but you're at home, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're on the family farm, tending to your chickens or your cows or whatever it may be, and you see cops pull up. Hell no. And drag your brother out of the house, you know, and he's crying, he's upset, he doesn't know what's going on. You're so scared, as a young black girl, you're hiding in the chicken coop. And that's the last time you see your brother being dragged out by cops. The next time you see your brother will be at his funeral at an open casket with a burned face because he was murdered by electric chair. Okay, so let's talk about George Stinney Jr., the boy that was dragged out of his home who was being arrested for murder of two young girls. Mind you, his parents were not home at the time, so he, the cops literally pulled up and just arrested him. Um, he was 14 years old at the time, and he was apparently arrested on suspicion of murdering two young white girls in 1944. Um, and at this time, he was convicted, but it would take another 70 years for George to be exonerated Stop. or absolved from the blame of the murders of Betty June Binnaker, who was 11, and Mary Emma Thames, who was 8. That's another thing that's bullshit, is that, like... Not only do you have to fight to prove that you didn't do it and then you're killed for it, but then you now your family's fighting to clear your name mm-hmm. after the fact. So. Well, and then those girls, they also don't get justice. That's Correct. what I was about to say. There's a killer on the loose. Right. I mean, later they, they find him innocent, um, and, and that'll come up later in my story, right. but there was a child murderer that was out there for 70 years. 70 years. And, yeah. The, the reason that they went after George is pretty obvious he you know was a young black kid number one but also they said he was the last person to see the two girls which sure you know maybe he was they apparently rode up to his house on bikes but he was with his sister and they stopped by his house to ask him um where there might be some flowers for sale he didn't know they went on their merry way he stayed at home and was still dealing with, like, the family, like, farm. Like, he was working with, like, a family cow. And he was there all day. So, maybe he was, like, the last person to say that he saw them. But, I mean, he would find out that was a mistake later. I mean, how did he know? He was You're a kid. Innocent. You're also, like, talking to an authority figure. And you're, like, trying not to get yelled at or hurt or beaten. So, you're, like, mm-hmm. saying what you need to say so that they'll go away. Absolutely. And, like, now I'm sure he was, like... I- you know, like, I'm sure, like, later he probably thought, I wish I would have just lied and said I never saw Which them. is why your parents should be there with the kid. Absolutely. Ugh. So, a little bit about George. The the unfortunate thing is that I couldn't really find a lot about him. And that's what I wanted to do. Much like your story, I want him to be known more as, like, a person and not just a case. Or yeah. not just the boy who was executed. It, But there really aren't many photos of him. Or, I mean, it was in the 1940s. So there's not many photos or... Poor and black. And again, nobody keeps records on... Mm -hmm. So he was born on October 1929 in Pinewood, South Carolina. His mother was Amy Stinney. His father was George Stinney Sr. And his sister was Catherine Stinney. It did mention that he had two older brothers, but I couldn't find any information about them. They might have been older. He died by electric chair on June 16th, 1944 in... Columbia, South Carolina Penitentiary, which is just heartbreaking to me that that's where he spent the last of his days. Yeah, yeah. He was 14. Mm-hmm. 80. That's my stepdaughter's age. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, 
it's, I mean, it already hurts because it's a child, mm-hmm. a, a defenseless child who, I mean, they don't know what to say or what to do when authority is around. But it hits harder, too, when you're a mother because it, you just, like, you just know that, like, these kids, they, I mean, they're kids. He was convicted of murdering two young white girls, Betty June Benneker, like I said, 11, and Mary Emma Thames, 8, who were found dead in a waterlogged ditch, having been bludgeoned to death with a metal railroad spike. How did they explain that one 14-year-old boy killed two girls roughly the same age as him? They They didn't. didn't. They didn't. Yeah, of course they didn't. So George was arrested and brought into a small room alone for questioning without his parents or without an attorney. That's illegal. Well... I looked into that, too, and at the time, the right to counsel was not decided until 1963, so they were allowed to get away with just talking to him without anybody in the room. Police claimed that he confessed to killing Betty June and Mary Emma, Mm. but there was no written confession. Oh, weird, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Crazy. So right after his verbal confession, I'm air quoting, and no written confession, he was immediately rushed to trial, and this was one of the fastest, like, trials that they're really ever was at the time. I mean, they were just ready to go. They were like, oh, we found our guy. Let's do this. Let's get it over with. And that's pretty much what Catherine, his sister, was quoted as saying in 2014. The This was her quote. The police were looking for someone to blame it on, so they used my brother as a scapegoat. Again, lazy police work. The real killers are out there. But he was easier. He said he saw them last. Their bodies were found in a, a vicinity close to where he could have possibly been even better that it's a black kid that they exactly yeah exactly so on april 24th 1944 there was a two-hour trial 10 minute all white male jury deliberation 10 minutes holy shit that's all it took for them to convict him of murder and sentence him to the electric chair so 14 was the age of criminal responsibility at the time so he wasn't, like, considered a minor at the time. So I guess the death penalty, they were just like, let's do it. Let's just get rid of him. Jeez. Did his parents even know he was having a trial? I mean. So they apparently weren't allowed to go see him. Yeah. At all. The entire time he was basically, like, incarcerated. So his lawyer was a local political figure at the time, which I'm sure was like, I don't want to make waves, you know. So he actually didn't call any witnesses to the stand. He did little to no cross-examination whatsoever. And then, once he was convicted, his lawyer chose not to appeal. Of course. He just was, like, wiping his hands of it and ready to be done with it. But, I mean, now, there are years and decades that go between when you are sentenced to death before it's actually carried out. And this will allow for time for appeals and for new evidence to surface. And things like that. And that's why they allow such a large gap in between. But he wasn't granted that luxury. That's like in um, in my case, um, his, uh, what are they called? Public defender mm-hmm. um, was shitty. People were like, why wasn't he not pressuring, like, pressuring, like, every time it got delayed? And it's just kind of like, that's just how it was. And yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Due to the lack of evidence and the hastiness of the trial, it goes to show you that an all-white justice system forced the conviction of a young black boy. 84 days after the girl's death, George was sent to the electric chair. So it was a quick trial, quick conviction, and almost no time before he was executed. So there is a quote by Judge Carmen 
Mullen. Hope I'm saying that right. And he is later the judge who ultimately led to the exoneration of George. He stated, the boy's prosecution was marked by fundamental constitutional violations of due process. Absolutely. So how did they get to a guilty verdict? Easy. They were just looking for any reason to kill a black kid. Let's just be honest. I mean, if we look at it, George technically had an alibi. George and his sister were the last two, the last ones to see the two girls the previous day of their murder. Not even the day of, but the day before. Like I said, the girls had stopped by their house on bikes asking where they can buy some flowers. And they left. George and his sister were there working with their family livestock. And George's relatives later stated in 2014 that the boy was at home the entire day of the murders. Family were not allowed to see George in jail the entire time he was there, so they couldn't, like, help kind of try to at least do anything. They couldn't even comfort him. No, couldn't comfort him, couldn't counsel him through this. I mean, nothing. And I know that they probably feel guilty for this, but I can absolutely see why. And I even thought about this before I read it, but at the time, the family actually fled their home because it was pretty much like they knew there was nothing they could do. Yeah. They couldn't help their kid, and according to the mom, it was like she knew the more they could try to help, she could potentially put the family at risk. Well, who's, who's to say they wouldn't come back after the sister? The sister, the her her husband, yeah. her, you know, he had two older brothers, apparently. I mean, it was kind of like, in a way, they kind of had to let George fend for himself, because if not... It could yeah. subject all of them yeah. to, you know, the same fate. They had to flee the home. They were terrified to come forward well, with any like evidence. They, ret- they retaliate. It's like, your son did this. And so now they come, you know, like mm-hmm. you see in all those old yep. movies burned where they the come, house. burned a house, bricks, and, and yeah. just rape the women. Like, right? Yeah. There was really no physical evidence. The girls were beat to death with a heavy metal railroad spike. So George's stature was five foot even or even less he was he was smaller and he was less than 100 pounds him chasing down two girls on bicycles with a heavy metal railroad spike and then beating them like is is very unlikely and last and two of them as well like two of them right exactly and i mean one was 11 and one was eight but i feel like I don't know. I just, I can't see that playing out. No. Well, especially at those ages, girls are typically larger than boys. So the 11-year-old was probably the same Same size. Yeah. Yeah. Not only that, but I feel like they would have found some type of evidence if he would have beat these girls. Blood on his clothes. Blood on his shoes. Yeah. Blood on his hands. Scrapes. It's just Mm -hmm. very, it's it's very unlikely to subdue two of them Mm -hmm. without some sort of physical, like, restraint or something. And if you don't have the strength and, like... And then to go back and take care of a cow. Yeah. Right. So there's that. Um, A big factor in all of this is coercion. So when he was brought in for questioning, there's a quote by forensic psychiatrist Dr. Amanda Salas. Um, She testified on the reliability of a confession by a young black teenager being questioned by white law enforcement officers in the segregated South. According to the judge's order, Dr. Salas concluded to a reasonable degree of psychiatric certainty that any confession given was a coerced, compliant, false confession and is unreliable. Absolutely. I mean, to this day, uh, I mean, people who are brought in for questioning who are innocent and think, okay, I don't need an attorney. You know, I'm innocent. And and they'll realize that through their questioning. 
they're being questioned, a lot of them don't realize that they're being manipulated into oh, saying right. certain things. Well, you look at those, like, interrogation videos and, like, the way that they're trained to kind of slight the questions, mm-hmm. you know, just, like, technicality-wise to, like, like I was saying with the police in my case, like, this is the guy who did it, right? Yeah. So, again, there, there's not a lot of records about what happened in the interrogation room. All that we know, really, is that he was in there alone, without any authority figures, without his parents, without an attorney. And he just had a bunch of white police officers questioning him. And really, who yep. knows how, how far that went. They could have gotten physical with him. Who knows how long he was in there? I mean, we all know that when somebody's in an interrogation room and you've been in there for hours, you're tired, you're hungry, you're thirsty, and they deny you all of that. It could be very likely that you would say something or anything just to get yourself out of that uncomfortable situation. Yeah. There was a man named Wilford Johnny Hunter who spent time with Stinney in jail before his trial. And he had testified back in 2014 that the boy looked small and frail. And then he stated George told him while they were in jail together, I didn't kill those girls and they made me say those things. He issued a statement saying the boy denied all the charges Again, nobody listened to him. This wasn't on the record or anything that he ever denied murdering the girls. The only thing they have on record is that he verbally said, I did it. Right. Of course. He even said, once he was convicted and sentenced to execution, he said, why would they kill me for something I didn't even do? Which to me is just heartbreaking because at the time, you're you're such you're a young kid. And yeah, like, that's such a kid's logic. It is. I mean... You're thinking, I'm innocent. Bad guys They're going to know jail. I'm innocent. Yes. Yeah, the right, yeah, cops are there. To, you know? Ugh. Yeah. So, exoneration. Why now? Why 70 years later? So, this is the case that has haunted the town since it has happened. Good. Rightfully fucking so. Yeah. But it garnered new attention in 2014 when historian George Frierson, a local school board member raised in Sydney's hometown, started studying it years prior to 2014. Can you imagine, like, all the people along in those 70 fucking years mm-hmm. that just were like, that sucks, or didn't even fucking... Yeah, or like, that's a part of our history we're just not going to mention. Yeah, whitewash it. Wow. wipe it under the rug, guys. But guys, the Confederacy, right? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's heritage. Mm-hmm. Fuck off. So it grabbed the attention of Circuit Judge Carmen Mullen, the one I had mentioned prior. New facts presented prompted him to vacate the conviction, calling the trial a truly unfortunate episode in our history. You think? You fucking think? Unfortunate. Unfortunate. Ew. Yeah. Not horrific. Yeah. He, he says, I can think of no greater injustice than the violation of one's constitutional rights, which has been proven to me in this case. Kind of want to leave you with a lasting image of, of really what this poor boy went through. So, Stenny was, this gives me chills. Stenny was only, like I said, barely five foot tall and not even a hundred pounds. The electric chairs, straps, which are meant for an adult man, were too big for his frail body. Newspapers at the time reported that he had to sit on books to reach the headpiece. And when the they flipped the switch, the convulsions knocked down the large mask that they put on them when they're executing them by electrocution, exposing his tearful face to the crowd so oh. they could see him essentially being burned alive and crying. Good. They should have to see that. Yeah, and and that's why I mean, it's it's awful to hear about this story, but you know, just envisioning it and can you imagine at fourteen years old? I mean, how terrified you would have to be. Yeah. 
walking down the corridors at what point do you still think that like no this isn't gonna happen you know like and that's what's probably the most heartbreaking for me to imagine is that like he was like yeah they're not gonna do this you know no you know i didn't do it why would they do this to me yeah just like at what point did he realize that like I'm going to die. You know, like, well, he didn't he even have time to process, alone. like, I'm going to die. Yeah. You don't uh, get to say goodbye to your family. You uh, don't get to see your family. You don't. You literally have no one in your corner. You, I mean, that was it. His life ended the day that the Even the person that's hired to, yeah. hired to be in your corner, you know, your attorney, like, can't yeah. help you. Like I feel like his attorney to... had an agenda. You know, he was into politics and thought, wow, I really don't want to make waves around here, so uh, I'm just going to let this happen. Awesome. So, yeah, very, very impactful story, and I just hope that that part of our history doesn't get swept under the rug. I hope more and more people hear his story and know what we've done and, you know, make sure that nothing like this ever happens again. There is a book and a TV movie called Carolina Skeletons that kind of showcases everything that he and his family went through, if anybody's interested in looking more into it. That for right now is the case of George Stinney Jr. Found guilty but exonerated 70 years after his death. Jeez. Birdie. So I know that you are really, really into, what do you call it? Personal justice, I guess. Personal justice, I mean, kind yes. Of. Um, she knows not, like random tidbits. <laughs> not she like does. Vigilante She's very knowledgeable. Them. Like, we all pretty much reach out to her for advice regarding this stuff, so... Yeah, so the first thing that I want to say, I'm not going to cover a case. I'm going to go over kind of what your rights are, especially if you're detained, because I think it's very important information to know. If I had covered a case, I would have covered a case called Curtis Flowers. There is an amazing podcast called In the Dark Season 2, and they go into detail about Curtis Flowers. He's a black man in Mississippi who was imprisoned for over 16 years for a crime he was never convicted of. So very similar to Jerrica's story about how he got caught into the justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, in the Dark Season 2 actually helps exonerate him. So highly, highly mm. recommend that. It's the best podcast I've ever listened to. The second thing I want to say is I'm not a lawyer. Yes. Please take this advice with a grain of Get salt. Get disclaimer out there. Right. I have never been to law school. I'm just really good at the internet. My other disclaimer is I. this is how the law is written. And 99.9% of the time, this would work for me. I am a cis, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman. If you're ever in a similar situation and your gut is screaming out to you that you need to do something different than the advice I'm giving you, by all means, follow that. I can tell you all day and night to clam up and not say anything, but if you're in a situation where you feel threatened and like you have to talk and say something to get out of that situation, do it. Fuck yeah. Say what you have to say until you can get a lawyer with you. So, anyway. That being said, I'm going to get into this. So, if you are detained, which is being questioned by the police, uh, particularly if you're being pulled into a police station and being asked about any kind of crime, whether you uh, committed it or not, I really don't care. You should know your rights either way. The first thing I want you to ask is, am I being detained? And you have to ask this question even if the answer is obvious, even if you're in handcuffs, Mm -hmm. even if they have you cuffed to a table, because by forcing them to admit that you're not free to leave, you're actually creating a record. 
Um, and your attorney can use this to prove when you were in custody because they have 48 hours to charge you with something or let you go. <laughs> if you don't ask this question, they can say, oh, he was free to leave at any time. Mm-hmm. He could have walked out and he just didn't. So this is a very important question to ask. Also, when you start asking this question, they might try to give you half-assed answers like, well, should you be detained? Don't you want to help? This is a very important case. This involves your friend. This involves your sister. So answering you with a question. We're just trying to do our exactly. jobs. Right. Why are you trying to make this hard for us? And again, don't answer. You just simply keep repeating the question, am I detained, until you are finally given a yes or no answer. There is a documentary on Hulu called Who Killed Garrett Phillips? Nick Hillary, a black man, was accused of murdering his white girlfriend's 12-year-old son when all the evidence actually pointed to her white ex-boyfriend cop. Uh, The officers told him he was free to go, but when he tried to leave, they physically got up and blocked the door. Wow. Yeah. It is an amazing an amazing documentary. Yeah, I, I Everyone should yeah. watch it. Yeah. And he did the right thing in this situation. When they got up and physically blocked the door, he went and he sat back down mm-hmm. because he knew if he touched that police officer, mm-hmm. they could do whatever they wanted yep. to him. And that's what they were hoping for. Right. I'm sure. And even though he continued to ask the questions like, am I being detained? They would say no. He would get up. They would block the door. And this is actually one of the points that was used against them later to get his Um, case thrown out of trial. Really? Good. Yeah. So he, even though it was frustrating, even though he had to go through this, even though his rights were violated over and over and over again, because he did not engage with them, because he de-escalated the situation. Which again, the burden's on us. The burden is on us. He was eventually exonerated. The second question I want you to ask if they say, yes, you are being detained, is am I being arrested? If the answer to... Uh, are you being detained is yes or no, and you're still not able to leave like Nick wasn't, you actually have to specify if you're being detained or arrested. And the reason why is if you're being detained, the officer has a reasonable suspicion to hold you there or to question you. But if they're saying that you are being arrested, they have to have probable cause, which is evidence, which is much harder, Mm -hmm. right? So it's... Kind of like uh, being detained is kind of like the precursor for it. They're kind of feeling out the room. They're actually waiting for you to give them evidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Being arrested, they have to have some kind of evidence. Okay. And so, again, in Nick's situation, if he had touched that officer, then that would have been evidence, mm-hmm. and he could have been arrested at that point. At no point was he actually arrested Okay. in this yeah. documentary. Again, highly recommend it. If they say yes or no, and they aren't allowing you to leave either way, then you have to say, I am invoking my right to remain silent. Mm -hmm. And again, this kind of is counterintuitive because you should feel like you can just say, stay silent and that should be enough. And that's not true. You have to invoke it and you have to say it just like that. Yes. I am invoking my right to remain silent. Any question they ask after that, Mm -hmm. ignore them, stare at the wall. Again, this is coming from a cis white lady who would mm-hmm. most likely be protected in this case. Stare at the wall, either give no answer or keep repeating. I'm invoking my right to remain silent. And they'll try to goat you with questions, even harmless ones. Oh, like, what do you do for a living? Okay, we're just waiting for booking. Do you want a drink? To get your stuff out. Right. Do you yeah. want a drink? Do you have kids? Nothing. No information. Because information is power. Information's a tool. Do not give them information. Again, I don't care if you're guilty or not. Protect yourself. Mm-hmm. 
And then if you do need to say something after this, like if they are going to go ahead and arrest you and they start reading your Miranda rights or they imply that they have a warrant out for your arrest, what you say next is, I'm invoking my right to an attorney. Yep. This is very, very specific. You cannot paraphrase this at all. You can't say, I think I should speak to an attorney, or I want to speak to an attorney, or aren't there attorneys available to me? No. Do I need a lawyer? Do I need a lawyer? Thank you. No. You have to say, I am invoking my right to an attorney. And then at that point, all questioning should stop. The other thing that's important to know is the state does not have to provide you with an attorney until you're booked. So until you go to trial, until you're before the judge, you don't have to have an attorney before then. So if you can't afford an attorney, you don't get one up until that point. So like in Jerrica's case, he was stuck in the cycle. Mm -hmm. He didn't have an attorney officially until they went in front of the judge for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is it depends upon your state if you actually get an attorney or not. A lot of times they'll say you have a right to legal representation, which can be a clerk. Mm. Or a paralegal. Interesting. Yeah. So you need to know how your state actually operates. Most of them will give you an actual attorney, but uh, there are some that they just won't. Well, I mean, there's some twisted places out there. Right. (laughs) But again, especially if you're traveling to places and you are a person of color, it might be handy to know these things. So if you don't have an attorney... For instance, you can't afford one. You just don't know any because you never thought you'd be in a situation like this. I highly suggest using your phone call because they only have to give you one to call a family member or a friend, not a bail bondsman. Mm-hmm. If you're in anything above a misdemeanor, don't call a bail bondsman. Call a family member and ask them to get you a lawyer mm-hmm. because that is your greatest weapon against injustice mm-hmm. is finding any kind of lawyer. Yep. Unless they're a piece of shit. <laughs> like, right. that were in both of y'all's. And in, but in both of y'all's, they were public defenders. Yeah. Sorry, public defenders, if you're listening to this, most of y'all just ain't doing it. They know it. You're overworked. <laughs> they know. Deep big. In the documentary, of, for my case, they had mentioned that, like, the case, in that, just in that district alone in the Bronx, like, the public defenders were had so many cases, like, it would overwhelm a small law firm. Right. And this was one single person would yeah. be overwhelmed with that many cases. Right. So again, they're not graded on whether or not they win the case. It's how many can they get off their desk. Yeah. Because they have 10 more piling yeah. up right behind mm-hmm. them. Um, the most important thing and the most important advice they can give you is try to remain calm, respectful, which is bullshit. Thank you. <laughs> again, it's such bullshit that you, the non-trained professional have to de-escalate the situation, but it is what it is. And above all, remain quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Say nothing if you can. So here is some slightly less helpful information. And this is all legal in the state of Texas and in the majority of the states. But again, don't come at me if this isn't legal in your state. Put a passcode or bio lock on your phone. If you're arrested with your phone, the police can search through it willy-nilly all they want unless it has a lock on it then it's considered in the same respects as a A safe would be Mm -hmm. yeah and they have to get a warrant and that means they have to have evidence they have to have probable cause and they have to go before a judge this makes it very very hard for them and if you're in and out 
of jail within like four hours because you got a lawyer and they didn't have time to get that warrant, guess what? You get your phone back. And you might be thinking, well, this sounds trivial. Well, if you were a Black Lives Matter protester and you went to a protest and you had other Black Lives Matter protesters information in your phone. Well, even now they they have these apps and stuff that I remember when all the protests in Austin, um, people were sharing things like if you're going planning on going to the protest, um, start turning off your location services now. Turn off all your geotagging. Don't post any pictures. Don't go on social media about it. Wear very, like, non, you know, descript clothing. less progressive cities and states were thinking about charging people with terrorism. I don't know if y'all remember, but the CIA was just coming and scooping up people. Yep. In big black vans. Yeah. And they weren't telling people why they were being arrested. Yeah. Yeah. So... You might think that this sounds paranoid, but do it. I have a passcode on my phone specifically for this reason. I have nothing on my phone that would help anybody. I have mostly memes on my phone, but I still have a fucking lock. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay. During a traffic stop, if they ask to search your vehicle, you always have the right to say no. Even if they say, oh, well, I smell marijuana or I think I see some alcohol in there, you can still say no. They can easily get a warrant, but again... That requires extra steps. That requires a little more time. Maybe you could, like, text a friend, text a lawyer, say, hey, I'm in a bad situation. Like, this cop is doing X, Y, Z. Buy yourself that time. Tell them no. If they keep pressuring you and you feel um, like your safety is at risk, you can say yes, but you can also put limitations on this. People don't often know that. You can say things like, yes, but you can't search the trunk. And you don't have to give a reason why. And then they can search the car, and then they would have to get a warrant for the trunk. The other thing is they would have to get a warrant for your glove box if it is locked. Mm-hmm. So if you have any yeah. information, lock, shit up all the time. lock it. As soon as you get your registration out, put your key in it, lock it. Hmm. Because they would also have to get a separate warrant for the glove box and the trunk. Never hand them an unlocked phone. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, my mom had always told us, like, if we got pulled over, again, like, I'm African-American, like... You know, my you we always get the talk of like how to act and you know if in such, certain situations don't do this, especially I'm like super sassy and you know it's just hard for me to like <laughs> you not sassy? say. No. I know, weird, right? But my mom always told us if, if we get pulled over because again we live out of the area where my parents are and so if we ever got pulled over she always told us to have a copy on our phone because sometimes the one in the glove box is you know out of registration or whatever, not current immediately you're waiting for the next one to come in she'll just have a copy on her phone screenshot. Set it as your background on your phone screen. And again, lock your phone. So th- they can pull up your registration. It's right on your lock screen, but they can't go into your phone because it's locked. Right. Smart. Yeah, that's very smart. So I have a couple of links that I'm going to post for more information. Um, some of them are free legal counsel to anybody who's had their um, personal rights violated. Also some links to some civil rights lawyers that do pro bono work. Because I think that is very, very, very important. And I am going to give you the homework again to listen to In the Dark Season 2 and to watch the Hulu documentary Who Killed Garrett Phillips on Hulu. So I do have another question, and this is probably more pertaining to the ladies because I also feel like we can be very vulnerable out there. Especially, like, for example, I travel long, very long distances in very, like, rural areas 
to go see my parents at night. Yeah. And I'm always, like, so concerned, like, what if I get pulled over? I'm by myself. I'm, I'm in the middle of nowhere. Something can happen. So what advice do you have for something like that? That's an excellent question, and I actually do have some information on it. Um, the first thing I want to say is an unmarked car will never, ever, ever pull you over. The only time unmarked cars pull anybody over is if they have an active warrant and they're literally setting someone up in a sting. So like if you're a mob boss and you're going to rob a bank that you've been talking about for months and you pull up and an unmarked car pulls up and then it just won't be one guy. It will be several cop yeah, cars, right? So an unmarked car is not allowed to pull anybody over. So hey, if you just see a car with lights on it, you don't have to pull over for that. Okay, great. You can see the lights come on. You can call 911 and ask them, hey, I'm in this kind of vehicle on this road. I'm being pulled over and I'm by myself. Is this a legitimate cop? Mm-hmm. And they will tell you yes or no. And um, you call 911 for that. Yeah, you okay. can call 911 for that. Absolutely. Yeah. And it is considered an emergency. Yeah. Okay. And then if it is a legitimate stop, they will call that cop and they'll let them know, like, hey, she's concerned. She's not going to pull over until she is in a gas station. And you're like, okay. Yeah. yeah. And they'll tell you, like, she said she's on the phone. She's going to this place. Right. Follow the you're line. not You're not resisting arrest. You're not running from the cops at that point. That is completely within your rights. The other thing is, is if you're in an area with no cell phone service, Mm -hmm. you can turn on your hazards. You can slow down, usually like 10 miles under the speed limit, and kind of get on the shoulder. But don't stop until you get to a place either with cell service or like a well-lit gas station with people in it. Um, There have actually been several serial killers and serial rapists who use that technique to find victims. Mm -hmm. Gangs, too. Gangs, too. Um, And human trafficking. Cops. Yes. Ooh, yeah. We human trafficking. Remi- no, thank you. On our campus uh, at UTPB, there was a cop that he would pull over girls at night mm-hmm. by themselves and he would rape them. Yep. yep. So it absolutely happens. You absolutely have to protect yourself. And those are ways to do it. And any good officer worth his salt will recognize that and know that that's why you're doing it. Okay. It's interesting because, like, I, um, my registration was, like, out or something, and I had, I work with special needs kids, and I had a client in my car, I was driving him home, and I got pulled over, and, I, like, this particular client had recently been removed from his home and, like, put it in um, institution temporarily just for emergency crisis care, and so I was concerned because he was aggressive. I was concerned then that that was going to create that situation, and so, like, I immediately, like, Rolled down my window because, you know, the cop comes up and, you know, asks you for your license registration. I was like, I have a special needs kid in my car. I, like, he, I, I'm working right now. His house is right over here. Um, I can tell you the street. Like, can you please follow me? And I was surprised that he actually went along with it because, again, mm-hmm. like, it could be perceived that, you know, I'm trying to get out of a ticket because right. I know why he's pulling me over. Right. But also, like, at the same time, like, the, I don't give a fuck about that situation. I was just trying not to get, like, my ass kicked by this kid. Also mm-hmm. trying to, like, avoid a situation potentially. Because, again, like, he specially I don't know he per- what he perceived from being removed from his house. Like, he now could trigger be triggered by this cop who now, again, like, he's already sensitive to, like, well, lights and sounds. you don't know how sounds. the cop would react And I was just either. kind of like, I, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And, I, and, again, he, the client at the time, like, big huge client like 15 16 year old so he looks like i mean he's a big intimidating looking kid so i was just like really concerned about that but i was very surprised that he allowed me to take him home well and part of policing should be they should be reasonable yeah so the last thing i want to talk about is in 2016 a supreme court judge actually ruled that it is not 
the police's job to protect and serve. Not to protect. Anyway, there was a case where a woman was beaten to death in front of a cop, and because she was not actively in his custody, he was not charged with anything. So just remember that. Not that police are our enemies, but you need to be forever vigilant and protect yourself first. Protect yourself, protect your community, protect your family first. Because they got a union backing them, like a whole... Right. There's, they're good. Not even just a union. Like the entire justice system is mm-hmm. geared to protect them and not and the people. Like cops are good. Right. They'll help you. That's Locks not how it over. should be set up. It should be to protect and serve you. And unfortunately, that's not the world we live in yet. No, it's not. That's and that's some very sound advice. Like you said, knowledge is power. Know your rights. Absolutely. I like that. Yeah. So we wanted to say thank you for listening to our stories today, despite how hard they are to hear. We think it's important to share these stories and spread this message and spread this knowledge in hopes that it will make a difference. It'll reach the right audience. It'll reach people who haven't heard these stories before. So again, we want to say thank you. I hope that if there's anyone listening that has any sort of connection to social justice, whether that's more organizations, please like shoot those our way in whatever way you choose, whether that's email, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. I think the more things we can get to the more people, the better, because clearly we're living in a society where people are fighting back and taking back their space and their rights as we should be. And accountability is the new black right now. So like, I'm here for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and Birdie has been very good about keeping up with our social media. And yes. I mean, if you take a look at our social media, you could tell that these topics are, are very important to us. Like Jerrica said, just we want to be involved. We want to help. So that's all we got for you today. Thanks Bye. for listening, guys. Bye. Bye. Check out more on our website, www.violentdelightspodcast.com. Email us at spooky at violentdelightspodcast.com. And check out our Instagram, violent underscore delights underscore pod.